0: from it, still able to teach, pastor, and lead, and counsel. And in the modern times, the church has had two um, theories or approaches to how to do that. The Sunday school movement that uh, that grew up with the evangelical culture of the 1870s to 1930s, uh, that we talk a lot about, the the whole split between what was called the fundamentalist and the modernist. Uh, Part of the fundamentalist movement was an invention of a new thing called Sunday School. And one of the things they were trying to address with Sunday School was to come alongside parents, because in the Bible it is the parents' primary uh, responsibility to educate their children in all ways, but especially in the things of the Lord and the things of the faith. And uh, the church to come along and supplement that and be a help to parents in their job, in their ability to do that. And the other thing they were trying to accomplish was to break down what's called the clergy laity distinction, and that's a huge part of what we do in Grace Christian Fellowship. We want shepherds, teachers, home group leaders, campus ministers, people who are, who uh, can lead others in Christ, but that's just part of their by vocation. And so um, the one approach to doing that, that that gave birth to the Sunday school movement was changing from actually having catechism and biblical theological content in Sunday school to having Bible stories. And that change came about because that way people with less biblical education could teach the Sunday school classes. And so what we're trying to do, and that began the process that has, that has got us in the present mess that we're in, where the church has been dumbed down in so many ways, and the message has been reduced, and, and so forth. So the other approach you could take is to better equip the people to do the ministry. And that's, of course, the approach of the New Testament. The purpose of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So our whole systematic theology, uh, this class, we hope to uh, start a class in two years on the five, five books of the New Testament written by the Apostle John called the Johannine Literature. Uh, the reason we want to keep more and more of these classes coming and get more and more people qualified not only to take them and pass them but to teach them is we want to expand the number of people that can help in the work of the ministry. It's as simple as that. So that's kind of a little bit about why we do this. And so you should have a notebook, and I'm going to take you through as much as I can today. So, this, uh, the, so the Church History 201 is called, I Will Build My Church. Hopefully you recognize this, that by now as a part of Matthew sixteen eighteen, And Jesus saying, I will build my church in contradistinction to Moses' church. That's what it means. The word for ecclesia in the Old Testament version that was in Greek called the Septuagint, the word for congregation or assembly of the Lord was the ecclesia, and that gave birth to our word in English, church. So, um, what Jesus is saying is that I'm going to be active in my church. So one of the things we want to start from the beginning by saying is simply this. Although the canon of Scripture was done being written by 70 A.D., prior to the fall of Jerusalem, and all of the New Testament books were written by then, nevertheless, that didn't mean God went home. Like, you know, in a sense, cessationist thinking It's actually kind of the Christian counterpart to deism. It's kind of the idea that God isn't active anymore and doesn't do these things anymore. And so, um, so we want to affirm that Jesus is in his church. So to not study church history is basically to not be interested in the, the works of the Lord, really, and to think that as, as what one of the things that came out of, you hear us talk a lot in our church about getting back to the apostolic hermeneutic. John talked about that today, how uh, the apostles interpreted the scriptures. The modern hermeneutic is that the the scriptures are interpreted out of context as proof text written directly to modern people from a modern framework or something. And uh, without understanding the culture they were written in, the circumstances, the history, and so forth. So one of the things, as we're going to see today, that can help us is to understand that just like the Holy Spirit helps you understand the scriptures when you're reading it, so there's been millions and millions of Christian brothers and sisters over the year, and years and church councils and pastors and teachers and leaders. Uh, we're going to talk about the apostolic fathers and, and so forth and, and uh, the patristic period and so forth that God has shown them how to interpret the scriptures and to neglect how they interpreted the scriptures is to Uh, neglect and a very important tool that would help us know how to understand the Scripture better. So, with that introduction, let me get into my notes a little bit. You should have a... The first thing in your notebook should uh, say... GCF Foundational Equipping Biblical Studies and Theology class, Cultivating the Kingdom Culture of Continual Catechism, which we already touched on, and then the Chapter 201, I Will Build My Church, a survey of 2,000 plus years of church history. Now, this is session one of nine, and this actually, section one of nine in the 201 will be both today and two weeks from now. Then, after that, from now on, there will just be one session every eight weeks for, sec- for the 201. And there will be one session every eight weeks for the 202, the people who are taking the extra. But there's no session for the 202 until after the second 201 session. Okay, so this is actually, you might say, Session 1A today. And uh, two weeks from now, you'll have Session 1B, um, when we normally would have had the second uh, Church History 202 two weeks from now. And so the Church History 202 will always run approximately two Sundays to three Sundays after the 201. And the 201 class will always run two to three Sundays after the Systematic Theology class. So, what we're trying to do is maximize the ability for people who are full time uh, workers, full time housewives, full time uh, students, and so forth to be able to keep up with a college level class by spreading the class out over 18 months from what you would normally take in college over three or four months. That's kind of the goal here. In fact, if you follow the readings uh, that we've outlined in the syllabus, which we have the syllabus, the syllabus was supposed to be first. Oh, it is, okay. So I didn't, I should have just had it that way. Okay, so if you follow the readings which are on the back of the syllabus um, you'll see that it actually comes out to uh if you could be faithful to read a little every week instead of just cram the last week before the class it comes out to about nine pages of reading per week or approximately 72 pages of reading every eight weeks every state and the sessions are about eight weeks so if you wait to the last minute you'll find yourself having to read 70 pages in the last two or three days before the class. So I highly encourage you to try to get a discipline of just keeping up and reading about, you know, nine pages or one of the chapters every week. Now, the first thing I want to talk about today is, um, we'll we'll introduce the class coming up. The first thing I want to talk about is, more in your outline, which should, should be the second thing in your notebook, I misspoke before, that says, Session 1 of 9, October sixteenth, two 2016, Today's Agenda. Should say toward the top, just under the title, it should say Today's Agenda. Does everyone see that? Now, so the first thing I'm going to do is talk about uh, toward a biblical view of history. If you know anything about the church today at all, you know that most churches don't run a church history class. Most uh, Christians uh, don't study church history. Uh, church, some churches uh, try to get their people to read the Bible. Actually, that is getting to be very rare anymore. And uh, you know, you'll hear some people will still say, well, if you could just have 10 minutes of devotions a day or something, And I always say, well, devotionettes make raisinettes. If you want dried up, shriveled fruit, then try to spend about 10 minutes a day with the Lord, because that's what you'll get, dried up, shriveled fruit. So, you know, a big uh, goal of Grace Christian Fellowship is to get everyone engaging all the time with the whole Bible. And church history, as we're going to see, can be part of that. So let's start by talking about the biblical view of history. Um, in the Bible, there are two testaments. Uh, hopefully, we all know that. There's what uh, Christians commonly refer to as the Old Testament, that I prefer to call the Jewish Scriptures, because Moses entered into uh, God through Moses entered into covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai in, in Exodus 19, 70 chapters into the Scriptures. And before that, there was the eternal covenant of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was the a covenant of Adam, or the Adamic creation dominion covenant. There was the covenant God made with Noah, and there was the covenant God made with Abraham, which He specifically repeats three times to Isaac, and then also repeats to Jacob. So, uh, when what we call the old covenant didn't even start till five covenants into the Bible, or so. So, uh, I prefer to look at it as the Jewish scriptures. However, as you probably know, we have 39 books in the, in the Old Covenant or Jewish scriptures. The first 17 are called historical books. And in fact, if you think they're just full of stories and myths as the modern liberalists started, that was part of how the fundamentalist Martinist controversy got started, because the modernist who became Darwinists, said, well, creation's just a myth or a story. And uh, Abraham is just, uh, there, there probably wasn't a real Abraham, it's just a story. And the more literalist, fundamentalist, said, wait a minute, it literally happened. So, Uh, The truth of the matter is the biblical view of history is that we have a God who lives outside and above history. He's eternal. And Hebrews 13.20 talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. That's a verse every Christian should know just by heart. Hebrews 13.20, the blood of the eternal covenant. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had a covenant before time began. And all of human history is an outworking of the terms of that covenant. And all the covenants of the Bible come out of that covenant. That's why when John Weiss did his teaching on uh, the church's practice of infant baptism through the centuries, he did it in the context of the eternal covenant. Because if you think more covenantally, uh, not like the modern way of thinking, then you'll see that God's covenants are eternal. Nevertheless, God, this eternal God that lives outside and above time, had an eternal purpose, which I call the eternal cr- decree. And He declared the, declares the end from the beginning, He knows that purpose before anything and he create when he created the heavens and the earth he also created time there is no time to god he lives outside and above he lives in a realm where there is no time we were trying to talk about heaven and i was trying to help uh, certain brothers understand some things about heaven and they're like "But that doesn't make sense like where is it and i said well it's not exactly a where is it geospatial issue (laughs) it's another dimension and uh, so um, this God that we worship and that we're called to know and serve and love and partner with His eternal decrees, purposes, and plans become part of His mission and so forth, has a plan, and that plan is first and foremost revealed to us in His historical actions in the first 17 books of the Bible, called the books of history, which we break into two categories. The first five books called the books of Moses, or the Pentateuch, which is Greek for five books. And then we call them, most Bibles will call them the historical books, from Joshua to uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. and uh, um, But I call those the other historical books. And I think the word other is kind of important there, because... Genesis through Deuteronomy are also historical books furthermore what we call the wisdom literature or poetic books which are Job, Psalms, Proverbs Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and the five major prophetic books and the twelve minor prophetic books adding up to seventeen in a five and twelve arrangement once again because God's all like that very symmetric he's very organized and uh, five being the number for grace and 12 being the number of the government of his, of his people and and there's all kind of symbolism there but those books happen in real historical situations and circumstances so kind of this modern hermeneutic where you take everything in Isaiah and try to figure out that it's russian helicopters and it's the second coming and and what you know and all this <laughs> Uh, And you you could get popular TV shows out of that, and you can sell a lot of books, but you can make a lot of money selling drugs too, but why would you want to? Um, So, I mean, it's sort of ridiculous stuff, but uh, nevertheless, it's very popular and widespread. But the first thing you want to know when you're reading the Prophets is, Most of the prophets will talk about how the word of the Lord came to Isaiah in the reign of Hezekiah, so forth and so forth. So one of the things you should always do, I used to do a thing where I read half of the Old Testament each year during a period of eight years or six years I did that. And uh, so I would always read the Pentateuch, and the wisdom literature together, five and five, then I'd also read the 12 other historical books and the prophets because five and twelve, because the prophets are prophesying during the historical books about real life situations. And the first and foremost meaning is what they were saying to the people that were listening to them. Not to Hal Lindsay. So Um, the first thing you need to know is that our Bible is a book of history. And it's about the miraculous, historical, redemption, interventionist acts of God who's working everything according to the counsel of his will for his predetermined plan to sum up all things in Christ. And so studying history is actually to study God. Now, uh, so um, all the major biblical themes of, of the Bible are historical. If you're not familiar with it, we have podcast at gcfdayton.org. And uh, under the podcast for mostly for uh, most of mine are usually under Sunday Bible study, I think it's called. Most of John's are usually under Sermon of the Week, but sometimes we cross those, so sometimes you have to bounce back and forth and look for them. But I did the first three parts of a 15-part series at one time, and then I decided to wait till we had more biblical foundations and were kind of more ready for it on a series I do called uh, The Kingdom of God, or What on Earth is the Kingdom of God series. Chapter 3 of that is called Major Biblical Themes. If you're not familiar with that, I would really encourage you to do that because the first thing you want to do in reading the Bible is understand there are major themes that, that run from Genesis to Revelation like threads going through a garment. And you want to follow the, the development of those major themes from Genesis to Revelation. Now, some of those include creation, the fall of man, God's call for man to to extend his kingdom, that is, exercise his servanthood-type leadership, A dominion, take dominion of the whole earth and rule it for his glory, that he wants a people for his possession, so there's always two people groups in the earth. There's the, there's the haters of God, and there's the lovers of God. And there's always those two people groups in the earth. There always have been, there always will be. And therefore, when you're reading the Bible, the Bible is primarily a history of God's dealings with his people, because he wants a people that is his, as Exodus 19 calls them his special treasure, a people for his own possession. Some trans, uh, King James thinks it's a peculiar people. That same Those same verses, which are Exodus 19, 5 and 6, if you don't know them by heart, I hope you do. Uh, are quoted by Peter in 1 Peter 2, 5, and 1 Peter 2, 9, especially 1 Peter 2, 9. God, that you'll be to me a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for my own possession. That's what God is primarily doing, having a a people who are the solution. The, The amazing story of the Bible, the history of the Bible, is that God's people who are supposed to be the solution are always the problem, because God's people themselves have sinned. So eventually, God is moving towards the final solution, which is Christ fulfilling everything so that we could be covenant fulfillers instead of covenant breakers. Um, Adoption that we talked about today in the 9.30 meeting, one of the most important messages I can think of, the idea of covenants, And uh, hopefully you know this concept by now, but the Old Testament, one of the things that especially Moses does is he takes the forms of the literature of the culture around him. So you can find very similar things to Genesis in the Egyptian writings and the Mesopotamian writings and so forth, except for they're 180 degrees the exact opposite message. So the ancient literatures had a, were a type of literature called mythopique cosmogonies. Now, that's not so hard to write it down, and, and I'll tell you what it means. It's not so, as hard as you might think to know. Mythopique simply means, peak means like poetry, that there's a message. Mythopique means it's not, tr- it's not what we would call true history. It's just a story, fiction. A fictional story. So all the ancient cultures, their writings started with a fictional story. Whereas the Bible study starts with historically accurate information. Exactly the opposite. And their writings were the cosmogonies. Cosmos meaning the universe or the order. Genos meaning the birth. They're the birth of the universe. How did the, where did the earth come from? Where did the universe come from? Why are we here? Now, in all the ancient cultures, they started with, in the beginning, was water. Because water is a universal symbol of chaos. If you've ever been on a, on a boat on a, in a bad storm and got caught offshore, you'll know that water has no form. It's formless and void, and it just goes whatever direction the container it's in. And when the container's in ocean, it can get kind of choppy. But, uh <laughs> Uh, whereas the Bible starts with "In the beginning, God," exactly the opposite message. All the, the the Egyptians, their cosmogony start with something like "There was this upheaval, you know, tumultuous waters, and eventually out of the which is that is that is everything was chaos. There was no order and reason or rhyme or so forth, and gradually out of that grew this little mud, little silt island, and it kept growing and growing and growing, and eventually, which is a symbol of kind of you know order developing. And so they're saying that order came out of disorder. Whereas the Bible says, order came out of order. Came out of God. And then in the ancient cosmogonies, this little mud island eventually gives birth to a cow. And that's an idea called spontaneous generation. Now, the superior thinking system of the Hebrews and the Christians smashed that idea in the ancient world so that evolution, which was the belief of every ancient culture from around 3000 B.C. to around 100 A.D., began to be in disrepute because Christianity said, how can life come from non-life? How can order come from non-order? How can there just be spontaneous or regenerated life out of inanimate matter? And everyone's like, yeah, that makes sense. And so evolution was on the retreat worldwide from approximately 100 A.D. until the mid-19th century. And then came along a guy named Charles Darwin who said, instead of the cow coming out of the mud should come a very uh, simple-celled organism. And that seems so much more feasible. So much more feasible because the Bible says that fallen men don't want there to be a God. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and they run from God. That the people lined up like they do for rock concerts today, where they'll camp out and you know have, or uh, what do they do for football games? Tailgate for a couple days and get drunk and party and so forth. So they can be because the people were waiting. And the every copy of, of Origin of the Species sold out in less than three hours because people were looking for an explanation that says we're not created, therefore we're not accountable, therefore we can do whatever we want. We can have copulate in the streets and get drunk and do our drugs and and we can do whatever we want. That's what fallen man wants. And we can be God deniers. That's what lost, sinful people want. Until God's grace sets them free from such bondage and death. So every major theme of the bible starts in genesis 1 2 and 3 and goes all the way through to revelation 22 hopefully you see that and all of them are rooted in god's redemptive and restorative acts in history now i don't have the same copy you guys have mine's a little more you know expanded so i don't know if i put this in yours but mine says, beyond redemption to a dominion under Roman number one, big point A, small point three. So let me help you understand something right from the beginning. When we're studying the work of God in the church throughout the centuries, almost every Christian commentator since the fundamentalist modernist controversy has reduced the message of the Bible. If you understood John's message today, one of the, you might have I was like on the one hand like speaking in tongues and glory to God and high fiving people and punching a few demons in my heart and what and stomping on a few satanic spirits in my mind. On, on the other hand, I was crying over the church because it's like nobody understands any of this anymore. And this is most sad. Almost all commentators will tell you the story of the Bible is the story of man's creation, fall, and God's redemption. And that's like saying the Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck is a story about some people from Oklahoma that went to California. <laughs> There's a lot more to it than that. Okay? So... um. Because God is, the whole Bible is something beyond redemption, but it's the ultimate fulfillment of what God had in mind in his eternal degree in in the first place, of which redemption is a stepping stone to being initiated into doing that. Adam wasn't supposed to just be saved and enjoy God and go to heaven and pray the sinner's prayer once in his life or something. He was supposed to be fruitful, to multiply, to remake creation out of the image of God that was in him, to reform creation and to reconstruct it and to bring it into a greater perfection and to support that he was, get, he was to be fruitful multiply, train up his children in the way they should go, and export them through four rivers to the four corners of the earth. Because whenever you see four rivers or four corners or the four winds in the Bible, it's talking about going to the whole earth. When, when Abraham was told to look four directions as far as his eyes could see and that, that everywhere he could see would be the land given to him, that was a foreshadowing of the fact that eventually in Christ, the better Abraham, the greater Abraham would inherit the whole earth as we studied in both messages today and church history is about the progression of God doing that there will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace and his government and peace didn't start to decrease after the apostles died and Jesus didn't say oh, apostles are gone i'm going i'm just going to sit back in fellowship with Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and other deists, and talk about how I'm not going to do anything in the world anymore. He continued to build his church as he is today. What we're going to talk about, hopefully, uh, probably two weeks from now, the global expansion of the church um, is because Jesus is doing that. All right, so next point is the Bible is providence in eternal covenant. There's, there, there's a doctrine called the sovereignty of God. God is in control of everything. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Even an atom is held together by the active participation of God. If God didn't, wasn't actively holding the atoms together, they would disintegrate. And God... Is is not silent, as Francis Schaeffer once said. He is there, and he's not silent. God is acting, and he's acting providentially. That is, he's working out his plans in the time-space continuum. Acts 17 talks about that when it says, "In him we live and move and have our being," and he is pointed the nations and their boundaries, if perhaps we might find God. Like God raises up nations and tears down nations and has wars succeed and fail and so forth according to his purpose. Because man was called to dominion and fallen man twist everything, there have been many would-be conquerors of the world. Some of them, like Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Adolf Hitler, etc., have started to make some progress, but in every time they did insanely stupid things that destroyed their progress because God has ordained that the world will only be ruled through one progenitor head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all would-be totalitarian kings and so forth are doomed to failure. All the Caesars, that's why the Christians, as we'll see when we study the New Testament church next session two. The Christians would actually when they met each other they would make a half a fish and if you were a Christian you'd know what they were saying you'd make the other half of the fish because it was against the law to be Christian because you were supposed to greet one another with uh, Kaiser Curios that is Caesar is Lord Kaiser like the emperor of Germany and the Christians said no Christos Curios Jesus is Lord So right from the beginning, there was this conflict between the city of man and the city of God, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, because no, uh, every religion is a complete thought system and every religion is always totalitarian and no religion will allow any other thought system or any other king in their dominion. That's why the goal of Islam is to conquer the world. They just have a different view of how to conquer it than the Christians do. They want to conquer it militarily by the sword. And if you don't bow the knee to Allah, we will cut your head off. And we want to say, bow the knee to Jesus and become like him and fall in love with him and be reconciled to him and join his kingdom. If not, break your knees eventually, but we're not going to break them. (laughs) Because God didn't give the church to do that. So, the Bible is full of foreknowledge and predestination. Let's look at, so, when we're talking about, we're kind of concluding this section toward a biblical view of history by saying history is the providential acts of God. It's studying the works of the Lord. Interestingly, in Acts 2, contrary to what the cessationists say, they say um, that in Acts 2, when they when all the people heard them speaking in tongues and they identify a total of seventeen languages because seventeen is symbolic for all the nations of the earth um, that 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 was given to spread the gospel first of all that is idiocy uh, secondly it's it's an idiotic in a certain kind of way it doesn't understand anything about history because that's 3,000 years after Babylon, after men began to study other cultures and learn other languages, and there were lots of people in the world that knew 4, five, ten languages and could spread the gospel without having to speak in tongues and not know what they were saying or something. Secondly, it never says they spoke in tongues to spread the gospel. It said they spoke in tongues the mighty deeds of God in both Acts 2 and Acts 10. That is, it was the opposite of what happened at Babel. They were speaking in one spirit to one God, his great redeeming acts. Now, where am I going? Let's go to uh, Acts 2, 22 and 24 on the day of Pentecost. That's how I got off on that. And look at a very interesting statement. we'll We'll study Augustine in a few weeks. That would be session three and Pilate, a guy named Pelagius, and then eventually we'll study Calvin versus Arminius in probably session six or so, and we'll see that men, men want to figure everything out in their head so they can't reconcile things the Bible clearly reveals. But l- listen to this. In, in the middle of his speech, Peter is talking. It says there were Jews from all over the world. He's speaking to Jewish Israelite people who'd come from all over the world to celebrate Pentecost. The celebration of when Moses brought the law down from Sinai because getting baptized in the Holy Spirit is the ultimate receiving the law because it's receiving the law not externally on tablets of stone but receiving the law in the the spirit of holiness on tablets of human hearts. And it's got the ultimate God writing his law in your heart and on your mind. And so... he's speaking to these Israelites and he says men of Israel listen to these words Jesus the Nazarene a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death well who did it Was it God's predestined plan, or did did the wicked men nail him to the cross? Yes. So the biblical view of history is it happened, so God did it. (laughs) Because if it happened, then God must have done it. (laughs) But not in such a way that men are not culpable, that is morally responsible for their actions. You can't say, well, I wasn't foreknown or chosen, so I <laughs> you know, it's not my fault I didn't come to the Lord. Yes, it is. So notice that he says, You nailed this man of the So he's saying, You guys are wicked. You nailed him, and that and what you did was you worked out the predetermined foreknown plan of God. Similar words are used about Judas. Judas is prophesied. Uh, In the Psalms, yet he's still responsible. Acts 4, 27 and 28 uh, says this, For truly in this city, that is Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and kills those who are sent to her, as Jesus described it in Matthew 23, 37, he said, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and kills those I send to you. How often I've wanted to gather you, you know, under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. So Peter is just standing in the same tradition as Jesus, the, the great prophet. And he says, prophetically, he says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, although so this is in their prayer, after they're threatened not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore, to uh, gather together, what was it, together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, as John talked about. All three, the Romans, the leadership of Israel, and the people of Israel, all rejected Christ, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Again, God did it. it. It happened, so God did it. Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God or are called according to his purpose. And there's other verses there about God's providential acts in history. By the way, that quote, it happened, God did it, is from the church history lectures that uh, we'll talk about today, how to use those. Um. Secondly, second point for today, so that's 1A, 1B, the importance of history in general. Why, why should we study history? And why should we study church history in particular? Uh, today, in, um, what you'll find is this happens a lot throughout history. The church influences the world, and unfortunately, the world influences the church, And so today, in both the secular culture and in the church, there's an, there's an apathy towards studying history and a disdain towards studying history. If I go over to our Bible study opponents on Monday and say, let's take a history class, everyone would go, oh. But, you know, But your Bible is a book of history. So your Bible is a history class. So we wanna overcome the current cultural apathy that's both in the secular world and in the church today towards studying history. I want to actually, by the end of this class, I'm hoping you're pretty excited about studying history and that you study history all the time. Now, the four sources of of the current anti-history culture one is we have a system of public education, and particularly in public education, but unfortunately in church, in, uh, in the, the Sunday school movement in the church with Bible stories. Bible stories are historical stories, but they're not taught with a good method because the best part of any method is to answer the question, so what? So the average person, when he hears that we're going to study history, they think, oh, my God, we're going to study about the battles of the Civil War, which would excite Sydney, but not the rest of us. But, uh, uh, you know, we're going to study about Washington's military strategy at Valley Forge or something. And we go, oh. And, And, like, we're going to memorize dates and presidents and so forth. Frankly, I'm not that good at memorizing. But it's never about just the facts, all history is someone's interpretation of the facts, and it's what facts you select and how you interpret them. And what we want to, that's why we started with toward a biblical view of history. we want to move toward understanding God's view of historical events. So any history that's just a lot of memorization and names and dates and true and false and matching is nonsense. Part of how I grew in love with history was my father imparted that to me. My older brothers imparted that to me. Uh, My first pastor imparted that to me. But uh, my high school imparted it to me because we had a thing in my high school that you'll be doing here called identifications. And identifications, you take someone, uh, a historical person like Martin Luther, and you say who he was. You answer five questions. You should memorize this. We're going to... Who, what, when, where, and so what. And the so what is as important as the first four questions. So when you... Your your actual homework assignments will be... You'll be given uh, a list of identifications, usually two or three from each chapter, maybe four or five, but you'll write... uh, for each class session you'll write uh, we'll go over that in a minute you'll write a certain number of them three or something but they have to be less than four sentences so in one or so sentences sometimes two you have to answer who they were when they were why what they were where they were but but in one or two of the sentences half the answer should be why is this important why are you wasting my time <laughs> what so what Why, uh, if you go to Bob Timer's church in the last weekend of October, two weeks from now, when we're having our second class, why will they have Reformation Sunday? What does it matter? Why will John tell us about Reformation Sunday two Sundays from now? (laughs) Right? Because I'm pretty sure nobody Catholic goes to our church, or nobody that's still Catholic. So the first reason people don't like history is if you don't emphasize the so what, it's boring. It's just memorization. And if you take an anatomy course, if you're actually going to become a nurse or a doctor and do stuff with it, it could be kind of interesting. But if you're just taking an anatomy course, what the public schools do is reduce education to just getting a letter grade instead of loving learning for learning in itself. And so you memorize all the body parts and so forth and forget it as soon as you can because you're not going to use it. But if you actually get the so what of it, you'll use it when you're raising your kids, you'll use it when you're going to work, you'll use it when we talk to one another, you'll use it to make wise decisions all the time. You'll use it to know why Charles Spurgeon said you should vote for neither of the two major candidates. Uh, presidential candidates this election, but let's not go there. <laughs> yep, he did. <laughs> he had a lot of foresight. All right, second war- reason is the postmodern infatuation with the latest and the greatest. All adolescents go through a, a stage where they want the coolest fashions and the coolest car in... All that kind of stuff. Now, because of our rested development issues, you see guys that are 60 riding around in sports cars, and it's because they never grew up. Um, every adolescent goes through a time when he doesn't put enough weight on his ancestors and honoring his father and mother and so forth. And he's actually beginning to see that my dad and mom have feet of clay. They're not as perfect as I thought they were. And so they're going through a time, and unfortunately, if the, if the kid has a lot of what the Greeks called hubris, a lot of pride, he'll be like, I don't need this family, I don't need this stuff, and, and so forth. And modern man has that view of history, Like, we got better technology every week. You know, I used to kind of take a twisted, perverse delight in showing people my $20 flip phone that was 15 years old until someone dropped it in a glass of water because I was like, look, I I still make this work. (laughs) You know, uh, we want the latest, greatest, coolest thing. And we don't have any kind of understanding that how we got here really matters. People always go, do I have to read the genealogies in the Bible and so forth? One thing you have to realize about, I don't think you have to memorize them, but I think you have to realize this. There's probably not anyone here that can name their grandparents back four generations. And ancient cultures used to be able to do that for 30 generations because it was important where we came from. And you will lack perspective in life and make a lot of foolish mistakes if you can only see one direction. When you lack history, you lack perspective and you make stupid decisions because you can't see the rear-view mirror. And that gives you a false understanding of, of, of the road ahead of you because you don't know anything about roads in general and how we got roads. And where we're going, we won't need roads. <laughs> All right, so third reason is that the modern, modern people are anti-institutional and anti-tradition. Now, honor your father and mother was not to be interpreted to always obey them. Paul actually says, obey them in the Lord. But you have to always respect them, and you always have to honor them, and you have to realize that that your life came from there. And that if you speak evil of your father and mother, you're speaking judgment on yourself. My parents weren't perfect, but you will mostly hear from me, except sometimes in counseling situations, I will tell a little bit about my parents' problems and our problems growing up, so I, so you know that I had the same kind of problems you had. But I try to keep that as brief as possible, because I try to speak mostly honorable things about what my father and mother did for me. I wouldn't be in Christ without them. I, it was them that brought me into the baptism of the Spirit and taught me how to cast out demons and gave me a high value for studying Scripture and and, uh, you know, it was because of them that I, by the time I was two- or three-week-old Christian, I had nine different translations of the Bible and hundreds of books and, and literally a thousand tapes because they had a Christian bookstore in their basement. And it was them who imparted so many things that, and I honestly operate out of, I need to be faithful to their legacy. And I don't just do that with my natural father and mother, who in my case happen to be spiritual fathers and mothers. Most people aren't that fortunate. But I especially do that for the fathers and mothers in the faith that have nurtured me. I honestly think of guys who discipled me regularly and realized that they were betting on me that I would become a world changer. And I owe one of the if you've never seen the movie the Ten Commandments, I would really with you the first version I think they have a newer version uh some t b s nonsense but the, re- the real version the one that's from that was from the bible no the one that's no I'm just kidding uh charlton Heston and Yule Brenner and that old one remember back in the epic fifties of Hollywood and Technicolor and all that and three hour movies and there's a the, the Pharaoh Uh, Yul Brenner is playing the the Pharaoh's son, and Moses is his adopted son, and it's all about what we talked about this morning, the historical adoption and succession, because Pharaoh gets it. His son says, I'll be the next Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, understanding biblical succession, as many ancient cultures did, said, the man most qualified to rule Egypt will be the next Pharaoh. And he says, I owe that to my father's. Not to my sons. Sorry. I pray you'll study enough church history and biblical studies and so forth that you'll actually be gripped deep in your emotions, not with like your agenda or your ministry, or your advancement, or whatever, but by being faithful to pass the baton that they passed, that they they paid for with their blood. You know, we're going to study John Huss, and John Wycliffe, and so many others who died so that you could read your Bible, and yet most American Christians today don't have time. And there were guys like William Tyndale who lived their whole life for the hope that there would be copies of the scriptures in languages that English-speaking people could read and that they would be widely distributed so that even average people of average finances could afford to have one. And that was the whole purpose of their life. And yet we can't find time. Church history might deliver you from that, I hope there's kind of an anti institution anti tradition thing in the church today, which leads to the fact that ecclesiology is a, in other words, very few people have any doctrine of the church. The church is something that we that we uh don't we don't size it up by what's the vision and goals and so forth, and how can I sacrifice my life to make this team's Win the championship, so to speak, or you know, extend the mission of God. But what's in it for me? Oh, this is the good teaching church. This oh, I like this place because they let me have this ministry or or because they have great worship or whatever. We become consumers, and that teach turns us into users of God. We're whores. Better get that one off the tape. No. <laughs> that That's just unfortunate. That? Yeah. Yeah, read Hosea, the Mexican prophet. <laughs> All right. So today people have no doctrine of the church. And there's this kind of anti-institution. In fact, some people have described the Reformation as the triumph of Augustine's doctrines of soteriology over Augustine's doctrines of ecclesiology. That is, his ideas about salvation replacing his ideas about the church. And the, the, to be honest, as unbiblical as some Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic things are, and even some you know, Lutheran and so forth, the truth is they often have it more right about the church than we do. Because the church is just something we use. And we're hopefully church history will deliver you from a low view of, of what the church is supposed to be. Because the church conquered the Roman Empire. The mightiest civilization that had ever been on the face of the earth fell to a bunch of radical Christians. even though they tried and tried and tried to kill them and stamp them out. The blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. Fourth reason is evangelical. When the, when the fundamentalist modernist thing started, out, what it came out of the fundamentalist side of the equation was what we call evangelicalism today. And um, evangelicalism rejected historical studies for two reasons. One is called the Anabaptist and Reformation historical viewpoint. Now, Anabaptists started with uh, they are the they are the spiritual ancestors of what we call Baptists today, uh, Hutterites, um, Mennonites. Mennonites, Amish, etc. Okay, and they have you know eventually became therefore their their children became things like Christian Missionary Alliance, Church of the Nazarene, and all that kind of stuff, Church of God, and all those kind of things. All of these grew out of, of the Anabaptist movement of the 17th century, as we'll see. And one of their ideas was the church was faithful till the death of the apostles, and maybe for another 50 or 70 years, but by 150 years into after Christ, the church was way off base and, and dead and, and no good. And therefore, you'll, you'll hear see a lot of people say, "We want and I, I actually had this idea in my young Christian days, we want to become a New Testament church." And I, I do want to get back to the apostolic pattern but I want to get back to the pattern of the church of the first seven ecumenical councils in the first eight centuries and and lots of things, not just the new, because here's why. Um, This idea that only the apostolic church was godly just doesn't play. You know why? Because today, Greg Weiss and John Weiss did teachings and lots of the verses they shared were in the New Testament. And many of the songs we sang, and even though songs they were practicing just a little while ago, had lines from the New Testament in them. And if the church, if Jesus wasn't building his church, you wouldn't have a New Testament. Because the 27 canonical books of the New Testament were decided at the end of the fourth century. So the idea that God left the church and it was backslidden and dead and everything like that, it just doesn't it rhyme or make any reason with any kind of sanity at all. Let me know how you really feel. Uh, it's ridiculous. Okay? God was... Jesus said, I'll build my church, and he didn't say, I'll build my church for 150 years, then I'm going to go away. And then in the 20th century, I'll start pouring out my spirit again, and I'll come back to my church. That's how most Christians today interpret church history. Both Charismatic and Pentecostal and non-Charismatic and Pentecostal evangelicals. Now, some evangelicals will go a little further and say, well, God was in the church maybe up till the 5th century. Then it died. Some will go as far as the 8th or 9th century. Then it died until Luther came along. And God was dead from 800 A.D. until 1519 A.D. Really? No. Jesus, the church has never been perfect because the same reason our church isn't perfect. Our church isn't perfect for two reasons. One, I'm the pastor. (laughs) And two, you're the members. (laughs) And that really messes up the whole church. (laughs) Both those facts. If we could just get rid of that, we'd be a perfect church. (sighs) Uh, The second reason, I actually put two here when I should have put three. Um, Three reasons for rejecting historical studies. Second reason is just the modernist fundamentalist controversy in general. Some of you probably know that, that our forefathers, uh, the, the descendants of Calvin and John Knox and so forth theologically, came to this country as Puritans and Anglicans and Scottish Presbyterians and so forth, and they founded these institutions called Universities. And these universities were supposed to train the next generation of ministers in the Word of God. And that's why Harvard University, whose uh, slogan today is Veritas, which is Latin for truth, their slogan used to be Christos Veritas, the truth is Christ. (laughs) And because these universities got captured by the modernist. Part of the fundamentalist reaction was, oh my God, studying is innately evil. We want to be stupid because then we'll at least be faithful. If you don't know anything, it's a lot easier to be faithful to it, right? <laughs> you know. So that really is kind of what so what had developed in, in evangelicalism was kind of an anti intellectualism, but especially an anti history posture. Now, if you want more on that, a good introduction to that's in a book we have by J.P. Moreland, who's a professor at Biola University, which stands for Biblical Institute of Los Angeles. We have his book back there. It's called Love God with All Your Mind, Chapter 2, which John Gray read. When I first got, uh, got to know John Gray, I was giving him different things to read that would increase his hunger for reading the Bible. That's what I do with all of you, right? Like I'm always like trying to increase your hunger for reading the Bible, right? So there's a method to my madness because the further you grow in Christ, the easier my job becomes. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and the more you're able to be equipped to to do the work of the ministry. So one of these days I'll actually take a vacation and like be on a beach with lemonade or something. Uh, now. The most noticeable thing of the anti-intellectualism of evangelical Christianity was uh, simply, boy, I'm really in trouble time-wise, as usual, was uh, an anti-history. And again, that's a a natural part of adolescence, but it'll leave you stuck in adolescence. And that is destroying our culture. We have 45-year-old teenagers increasingly thirdly was the development out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy of what's called dispensational premillennialism a, a view of the end times that's fundamentally a view of history that there's that history is going backward and that the church of christ will be shrinking and there will only be a remnant left and we're in every small church is like we're the faithful few because you know you especially get that in very sectarian cultic things we're the only ones that are faithful and not really um so eschatology what you believe of the reason we talk about postmillennial eschatology and recommend that you read books like an eschatology of victory and paradise restored and these kind of books is because what you believe about the future of God's kingdom and church will change all of your priorities. As John was saying in his teaching a week ago uh, and I, I've known people like this myself. You know, I was sharing the gospel with one of my drug addict hippie friends. And he said, oh yeah, like I went to a church and got saved and all that like 10 years ago. And I said, really? What? You could have fooled me. <laughs> what happened? And he said, well, they were saying Jesus was going to come back and it was taking too long. <laughs> you know. And uh, you all know my story about a sweet little Pentecostal lady that my mom and dad knew that I ran into a grocery, in the grocery store, and I'd been a Christian about two or three weeks, and I'd gotten baptized in the Spirit, and I had this expectation of a worldwide revival. I hadn't been taught yet. in <laughs> that God's pouring out the Spirit everywhere, and this is going to be awesome. where Jesus conquer in the world. Let's get in. Let's study. Let's fast. Let's pray. Let's do this stuff. And uh, she came up to me in the grocery store and says, Brother Weiss, I don't know if I can take it much more. I sure hope Jesus comes back in the next two or three weeks because I don't know how much longer I can hang on. And I was like, I'll have what she's having. (laughs) That's a line from a movie that you probably shouldn't have watched. Um, All right, so George Orwell in his uh, dystopian novel, 1984, says, he who controls the past controls the future. He who controls the present controls the past. Now, that's why all totalitarian states get rid of the newspapers, get rid of the libraries. When the communists take over, they kill all the educated people because they don't want anything but their view of history in the society. And that's why, and they have that's why 1984 features you know, totalitarian society, and they're constantly spitting out their propaganda because all history is someone's interpretation of the past. And even people like Karl Marx, he had a view of history, that history is inevitably progressing in an upward direction until the dictatorship of the proletariat, until we kill all the capitalists and the educated people and bring about the workers' paradise. That's a view of history. That's a vision that that, that people sacrificed their lives for. And then a lot of people got their lives sacrificed for that vision. <laughs> so Jefferson Davis, you know, basically said, whoever whoever wins the war, a lot of people actually hundreds of people have said this, whoever wins the war controls the history. They write the interpretation of what the war was about in the first place. That's why the average person today, because we're educated in American status school, thinks the war with the Civil War is about slavery, and that's all they know. And the Southern evil people were having slavery, and the northern people wanted to free him. Which first of all, Lincoln wasn't even an abolitionist when he came to the White House. He decided to free the slaves three years into the war. But secondly, both sides were fighting for a godly thing, and both sides were fighting for an ungodly thing, and both sides were had were were cultures that were predominantly Christian, praying to God through the Father through Jesus Christ, for their victory. When in fact they were fighting to protect something evil, as well as something good. And the North was trying to because what they were doing was the why we have the crazy political situation we have today. The North was fighting to say you don't have the right to leave the Union. You are our slaves. And if you don't think you're a slave, get, get a job, then get a paycheck, and then look at the gross amount and the net amount, and go, what happened? You know? And then get a calculator and figure out what percentage they took. That's why the 4th of July is Independence Day, because you work about half the year for the government. Uh, <laughs> All right. Why history matters. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That was a famous a Spanish-born philosopher who considered himself an American. I think he was nine when he moved here. George Santiniana. And... Uh, That was often quoted over and over again by Winston Churchill in in Winston Churchill's speeches. And if you don't know anything, we don't have time to go into Winston Churchill right now. (laughs) Great. If you want to become a great speaker, study how Winston Churchill became a great speaker. Now, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. Church history is the study of what God has done in the past. Here's one of the things I mean. You know, we recite creeds and so forth. Do you know that the creeds came out of a process that we're going to study a lot of in this church that Paul tells us about in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, that there must be heresies among you so that the truth can become evident. God allowed sovereignly false doctrines to emerge so the church would have to clarify what the scriptures were saying all along about the Trinity and the deity of Christ and so forth. And that's how we got the creeds and the canon of scripture. It was a sovereign historical process of Jesus building his church. And if you don't realize that, you'll, can, you'll, get, you'll make the same mistakes. For instance, part of the fundamentalist evangelical controversy has been most evangelical churches don't recite creeds in there because the idea was if we have a scripted liturgy, we're squelching the Holy Spirit, so we should just have a free-for-all every Sunday and just let people run on the tops of the pews and dance in the aisles. And you know. And I'm all for being expressive in our worship, as you know. I love that. We, but on the other hand, there were things they did in the Lord's Day celebration from the time of Christ on, including recite creeds, And the creeds got more and more clarity until we had the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the symbol of Chalcedon, and so forth. And they clarified what the Bible's saying against all the would-be cults and false teachings. And so doing, they wiped out the cults for nearly a thousand years. Along comes modern evangelicals, and they say, ah, we don't need to recite creeds. We just need more of the spirit in our meetings and so forth. That ancient church stuff is ridiculous. Of course, they don't even know that it existed because they don't study it. But uh, we don't need any of that. We just need the spirit. And along came, then all of a sudden we have the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, as you're going to see when we study Arianism, it's just the same cultures that they wiped out in the 4th century through the creeds, but with a different title, but it's the same doctrines. And I always say a creed will never lead you to Christ, but if you grow up in a creedal tradition and you start having God tap on your shoulder and you start, you know, thinking about heaven, hell, and sin and eternity and spiritual things, maybe I should read the Bible or so forth. If you grow up in a non creedal tradition, whoever gets to you first will win. If the Mormons get to your door first, you'll become a Mormon. But if you grow up in a creedal tradition, when, when God starts knocking on your door, you'll end up in an Orthodox Christian church. Not in a cult. And that's why the church recited them from the from 38 A.D. on. Alright. That's uh, point C down at the bottom of the page. I gotta whoo. Now, um, we're going to study, so what, one of the things we're going to see is right after the, the apostles die, there's a period of time called the Apostolic Fathers. For instance, there's a guy named Polycarp, which is Greek for many fruits. Much, much It meant he was very fruitful. And uh, Christians started taking Christian names to get rid of their pagan names when they came to Christ, which is still practiced in many countries of the world today. All right, so uh, Polycarp was discipled by John for a number of years, and then when John died, who was the bishop or head head elder of the church in in Ephesus, Polycarp became the head elder or head bishop of the church in Ephesus. And so if you want to know what John's gospel is about, maybe you should read Polycarp. Because if you want to know what I'm teaching... You could talk to someone who's been to our church three times or you could teach, talk to someone who's known me for years and heard hundreds of my teachings. And guess what? The person who knows the person better would be a better source, right? So our view of history shapes the way we, pre- we view the present and therefore dictates what answers we offer for existing problems. Moving on. This is under uh, point C, Uh, the relationship between church history and historical theology. So the first thing is uh, church history played a role in the development of historical theology to give us the truth. Second thing is there's a saying, Ecclesia Semper Reformata Est, I think I said it pretty close to right, which is Latin. The church is always to be reformed, or some people say is always reforming. Now, Karl Barth first said that, a theologian that we'll talk about. We we wouldn't agree with a whole lot of what he had to say. But he was taking it from St. Augustine saying, Ecclesia Semper Referent Manda, the church is always reforming. Uh, The Protestant reformers, especially John Calvin, that was like their rallying cry. Because the church is full of fallen people, it will always need to be renewed. It will always need to be reformed. Always. Our church needs to be reformed. <laughs> I think our pastor needs to be reformed. Uh, <laughs> maybe you should learn how to speak shorter. Um, so, uh, if there's, you know, I've given you some uh, Wikipedia articles if you want to study that concept more. But the truth is, this idea we have in Grace Christian Fellowship to rediscover and restore biblical Christianity should always be every Christian's goal. I remember reading the literature of, a, of the Assemblies of God denomination formed in 1914, grew out of the Azusa Street Revival and so forth, and their literature says, we exist to get back to the New Testament model. But the truth is, if you understand what's called full gospel uh, fellowship, they felt that the doctrines of salvation, well, we're going to add to conversion and water baptism, we're going to add baptism in the Spirit, and that's it. That's the full gospel. We got it all back. Most Pentecostals today have that idea. If we could just add to the evangelical view of salvation and water baptism, uh, and their non-history view and their non-Ecclesiology view. We, we can keep their non-history view and their non-biblical studies view and their non-theology view and their non-church history view, but we got to add the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Then we got it. One of the things you hopefully you'll get out of church history is to understand that it's never about just restoring one thing unless that one thing is restoring God and the Lord Jesus Christ to his church, who comes to us through the three delivery systems of the Word, the Spirit, and the church. And it's about restoring everything. We need to reform what the church is, what the structure, the mission, the lifestyle is all the time. We need to to have a better relationship with the Holy Spirit every day. Because the Bible says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And hopefully you've learned by now what we call reading the reverse negative. The reason the Bible says don't grieve the Holy Spirit is why we grieve the Holy Spirit. We have lots of prideful attitudes and other things that are very grievous to the Holy Spirit. So we need to re-encounter and repent and and re-reform and come back to the Holy Spirit every day and so forth and so on. All right, third reason is what we just touched on, the three delivery t- systems of grace. And in fact, uh, one of the things I'll encourage you to do as we study this church history in plain language thing is look at the various ages and movements and so forth in terms of their relationship to Scripture their, and, and creeds and other intellectual content, you might say, or belief foundations, their relationship to the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit, and their view of what the church is. And you can pretty much see why the church is less and more effective in different cultures and different time periods, because when they're missing parts of those three things, the church becomes very innocuous, anemic, of nomad, of, like we are in our culture. Our, the church is having less and less and less impact on our culture because we've reduced our understanding of all three of the delivery systems of grace. We have less study of the Word, less uh, serious approach to that. Oh, more and more and more. That's been over a hundred and fifty-year trend, and for. Large sections of the church, we've pretty much kicked the Holy Spirit out or said he died. or We say we would receive him, but we only want him in a theoretical way. As long as he doesn't do anything, he'll be welcome. You know, you can come over to my house as long as you sit in the driveway. Uh, And of course, almost no Protestants have much doctrine of the church today. Moving on, the next point, the relationship between systematic theology, biblical and exegetical studies, and historical theology. I really got to keep moving. Historical theology is foundational connecting bridge, progressing from biblical and exegetical studies, also known as biblical theology, to systematic theology. So, historical theology will help you understand. There's a reason, there's a method to our madness in this church. We have a systematic theology class which is actually the least important of the three. Then we have a church history class, which is the second more. Then we're going to start a series of biblical studies class, which is the foundation. Of course, we teach on Scripture you know, three times a week around here, twice on Sundays and Tuesday nights and so forth. And we have foundational books and foundational intermediate books and We try to get people on taking programs to take the whole Bible more seriously and so forth. That's a major thrust for us all the time, right? But historical theology is the bridge to, to check your systematic theology, Because what started to happen after the fundamentalist modernists is various denominations. They have like, we believe this about the Holy Spirit, or we believe this about prayer, we believe this about the deity of Christ, and so forth. And then we have our proof text for what we believe. And we have our eschatology, our brand new negative dispensational premillennial eschatology, which no one ever heard of until after the Civil War. Never believe any theology, which is completely modern, by the way, uh, that nobody ever thought of for 1,800 years. So but even though 95% of evangelicals believe that it's a brand new idea and just because 95% of people believe something doesn't make it right right okay so historical theology will be a check on your systematic theology because you're saying what did other we're not the first Christians who ever loved God I am probably not in the top 50% in terms of the purity of my love for God of Christians or you know I don't know where you know I don't know how to think of that this kind of stuff but you know there's lots of people who love God more than me who've known biblical studies and more than me and have had far deeper experiences with the Holy Spirit and maybe I should consider what they thought the scripture meant instead of being so prideful just to have my own private interpretations of scripture all the time Historical the, theology is that, is that bridge. Now, there's a, there was a guy named Vincent of Lorenz who wrote a book called um, The Coleman, Commentary, I guess it's pronounced. And uh, in Latin, it means that faith which has been believed everywhere, always by all. Now, All he was doing was he was describing what was called the first seven evangelical uh, councils. The the council number zero, just like in in, in computers, you start with zero. So no one counts Acts 15, but really Acts 15 is the first church council. Now that's not, if you study the seven church councils, they won't list that. So call that zero And then you go on through to Nicaea and all the Chalcedon and Ephesus and so forth. Vincent of Lorenz, after the seven ecumenical councils, wrote a book about the history of the councils. I think around the 8th century, if I remember, when he lived. uh, About the history of the councils and what principles they used. And he said, the truth is found, uh, of course, first and foremost in Scripture, But it's found by understanding that faith, that is what they believed about Scripture, that was believed by all people always everywhere. Because all cults are some small sect that starts in some geographical place. Let's move out to Utah and start our cult. We're going to study lots of the cults in the next few sessions. Now, let's get into the content of the class. First is the the book, Church History in Plain Language. Next time, you are supposed to have read for this time the forward, the prologue, chapter 1 and chapter 47. In your notebook are summaries of those chapters with bullet points of what I thought was important and Deanna Brown graciously typed up for us. So all I did was give her access to my Kindle books and I highlighted things and wrote certain text box notes and she gave you and you have eight pages of handouts of my summaries of those chapters, <laughs> what I think about those chapters. Okay, and that's what we'll cover two weeks from now. The rest of today, we're just going to cover. If anyone wants to stay for the discussion, maybe we'll post that till two weeks from now because it's already late, and I really want to get into kind of giving you some more nuts and bolts about the course. We'll normally try if we could. We kind of had to get started a little bit late because you know it's just still try to get in here quarter to, especially if people have kids involved and things like that. Try to kind of get all that over with by quarter till, so everyone can, you know, because because what I want to do is have the lecture part until three thirty. And then have a discussion every time. So uh, we'll have to postpone the discussion till next week, but we're going to look in the discussion. You can see it in Roman numeral 2, halfway, well, halfway through my second page, but I have longer notes than you. Where's that on yours? Uh, Roman numeral 2. Oh, that's also my expanded copy. Yeah, okay, so where it says discussion question, that's what we'll discuss next time. I put some quotes there for you and some helpful words. Because what we're going to discuss, is it great men that change history? Or does the zeitgeist or the milieu, which means like the religious, social, economic, cultural conditions of a time period, guarantee that a great man will step forward to change history? Which is it? And uh, you'll see that there's a guy named Thomas Carlyle listed somewhere, in maybe just in my notes. Is he in your notes? Uh, who wrote a book on heroes, hero worship, and in heroic. He basically is saying history is nothing but the biography of great men. However, he was not certain thinkers didn't agree with him which I thought I had some of their quotes coming up later. Um, George Frederick Hegel, who kind of gave birth to the ideas that eventually gave birth to both fascism and communism. But Hegel thought... uh, Nobody can escape the culture there. History is all the product of what's going on in the time period and the religion and ideas of the period, and nobody can transcend that. So we're going to talk about that next time. Like, is history happened by great men or by movers and shakers, so to speak, or do historical circumstances kind of make it inevitable that those great men will arise? Now, moving on. Explanation of 201. Yours says explanation of 202. We'll get to that. Skip that. Skip Roman numeral 3 to go to Roman numeral 4. Explanation of the 201 grading. If you take this class, you can just sit and take it. Let us know, I don't want to participate in a grade or get a certificate at the end of it. That's okay, because this part is lecture. And... um, now, you're, it's supposed to cost $20 if you, don't forget, if you write the check to $20, make it the Grace Christian Fellowship, but on the memo put building fund because you're just making a contribution to the building fund. So I'm just doing this class for the building fund. No, the reason is we there's podcasts, and you're not supposed to sell them, so I don't want any conflict of interest being in there That because, you know, if you get those little, what are those sticks called again, flash drives, uh, you know you can get you can download this yourself. The instructions are in the syllabus, or you can get it on a flash drive that Josiah and Stephen have made for you. Thank thanks go out to Nathan Hager. Nathan Hager is the one who listened to all these church history series and decided which ones we were going to use. And and i, I the first uh, fifteen or so of them I've listened to several times. They're they're good. Good guy. Uh, You don't have to listen to them, but you'll get more out of it if you do. I try to find ways that I can listen to lectures, like when I'm in the shower, when I'm lifting weights, when I'm doing my back exercises. Because I can't really read a book while I'm doing my back exercises. And reading a book in the shower just never works out. Uh, So, you know, driving in the car, whatever. If you have a long commute to work, listen to some lectures while you commute. Now class attendance there will actually be nine sessions actually now ten since we're doing this thing two weeks but um, each time you attend you get ten points if you have perfect attendance you'll get uh, a, a bonus of ten points so uh, we are trying to get on didn't anybody talk to you we were trying to get you to take attendance so please make a list of who's here before you get as soon as you can um, do you have like just a, one of the class lists that he could just check off or something, Stephen? You did? Okay. So if you miss, uh, what you need to do is email Stephen, myself, and Deanna uh, some proof that you listen to the podcast by giving a little bit of a summary of it or something. And uh, we'll probably give you five points for having listened to that or something. But you get 10 points if you show up. Now, then there's these things called identifications. Who, what, where, when, why, and so what. Each ID is worth five points. They can be a maximum of four sentences. Don't write me a book. When I was a prideful teenager in my early college years, when the when the uh, history teacher would ask us to write an essay, and I thought you could write a whole book on this subject, I would purposely write this really long essay and, and then squeeze it into. And anyway, just <laughs> just to say, what are you asking us this question for? You could write a book on this question. That's but but they say something that I'm not very good at, which probably means I'm not very educated. Supposedly, if you're wise and brilliant and knowledgeable. You can reduce these things to s- simple things. And that's like a gift. I just can't do it. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, like you could say these things in, in an hour instead of five hours. Someday maybe I'll be able to. But uh, more, no more than four sentences per ID. You'll get a list of IDs uh, by the next time for the next class. And they'll just be one, two, or three either persons, or places or events and you're saying who that who they were why what they were when they were where they were and why is it important the the why is it important is half of the five points at least that'll be two and a half to three points each time that's the most like because if you don't know why they're important then history is no fun at all yeah so what? Like, why? Why would we want to study Athanasius? Right. One of the things you're going to see in this is that because uh, Christianity eventually expanded to Europe, and eventually it became a white man's phenomenon, most people don't know that the apostolic fathers that we'll be studying are primarily uh, Africans who lived in northern Africa in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century and saved the church from wrong directions. And most of them were black people. And in fact, uh, Athanasius' enemies called him the black dwarf because he was short. (laughs) Just like some of mine call me the fat guy or whatever. But, (laughs) you know. All right, so... The, the so what thing, this is a tried and true method that helps develop historians understand the causalities and the antecedents in history. It takes historical studies out of the boring and makes it exciting. In the early sense, sections of the class, I'm gonna ask uh, some guinea pigs like Nathan, uh, Stephen, and Deanna to write some IDs and, and give us permission to make them public and then we'll critique them in front of you <laughs> and uh, so that you can kind of get the hang of it. But the, the, what I'm trying to do here is you're averaging about nine pages of writing a week. And if you did one ID every three weeks, see, we said there would be 20 IDs. So, the, yeah, there's an average of two and a half IDs per session, so that's one every 4 weeks or so in four sentences. That's really not a lot of workload because part of what the strategy of these classes is is to give you what you would get in a college class but with a lot less work and especially the busy work. Any any teachers here, public school teachers, or at least Tim is studying that. But one, you know, I took my first education class and I said I'm never going to be a teacher because I discerned right away they like busy work, lesson plans and bulletin boards and and just projects for the sake of projects. And I thought that's not going to work. All right. Now, next thing is uh participation. Punctuality, Stephen will be making a little mark in his attendance about whether you are on time and in your seat on time and are you listening and when we do have the discussions which we'll hopefully have next time do you participate now therefore people who are more shy are at a disadvantage lastly uh well that's and that's worth 50 points so all in all there's 250 points if you get 175 points, which is 70% of the grade, then you're going to get a framed certificate like we do in the systematic theology and in the catechism that you can hang on the wall that say, I went to the non-accredited school called Grace Christian Fellowship that's part of the Alliance for Old Churches, and I finished the church history class. But hopefully you can take some satisfaction in that. I would. Um, if you get over 90%, you're going to get a little... Latin thing, I think it's called cum laude, is that how it's pronounced? Cum laude, which means with honors. And I have that on my college diploma and I'm, pro- I'm glad I have it. Every once in a while when I'm studying, I have my diplomas on the wall, I see that and go, well, at least I got above 3.6. Because I wasn't a very good student. All right, now, last thing is the, the explanation of the 202. There's a book called 131. It should be listed here somewhere, is it? I think I might have I think I might have forgot to relist that. It's in your it's in the syllabus though. 131 Christians that everyone should know. Whoever's taking that, make sure Stephen is clear that you're taking it. And beginning next time, tell us who you're gonna cover. Because we won't let two people cover the same person. But you have to unfortunately the book is arranged by like categories like preacher or apostle or whatever and i want to do them by chronology so next time for those of you who are doing that part of it what you're going to want to do is choose someone that lived before saint augustine and saint augustine is not going to be allowed to be done until the third session because he's so important And whoever does the best job the first time around will probably be the one that gets to do St. Augustine, and they'll get more time to give and sing. There is one whole lecture in the lecture series devoted to St. Augustine. He's pretty much the last of what's called the patristic period that Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestants all say, he's our guy, you should read him. (laughs) After that, there's probably been no agreement as to one guy that all three of those groups would, would recommend reading. So, when you give these speeches, how long you'll have will be, will be telling you, but it'll be based on, we want to do it in two hours. So, for instance, if there's 10 people taking it, 120 divided by 10, allowing for two minutes for the next speaker to get up and so forth, you'll have 10 minutes, basically. We'll limit you to nine or 10 minutes. And I'm going to ask certain people, I have a little form from when I taught at Sinclair and had speeches, certain people will critique your speech and it's just so you can have the the fun and enjoyment of studying someone. You know, you read the four or five pages of the church, uh, the book has to say about it. Then maybe you read the Wikipedia article, and you could take it as far as you want. Most of these people are famous enough; there's biographies about them. You can knock yourself out. You can study, become an expert at. You know, uh, Gregory of Nyssa. Make sure you choose somebody named Gregory if you're going to become an expert. Um, Go as far as you want and uh, use a PowerPoint if you want, handouts if you want. Uh, It's really just, and so the whole church is going to be invited to sit in and listen whether they're taking the class or not. So if you think it'd be fun from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock on the afternoon to give up watching football and come over and listen to your fellow Grace Christian Fellowship people give speeches about various historical figures, then you're invited. And that's all the 202 is. There's a grading scale there, and you'll get a certificate of completing that. Eventually, down at the bottom, there's a teaser there that we're going to leave alone for now, uh, which is basically I just felt I couldn't bite off that much, but eventually there's going to the next second time we run this, which will be starting in the fall of 2018, Lord Willing. And if the premillennialists are wrong and we're still here, Uh, (laughs) uh, in the fall of 2018, we'll be running a class uh, again, and we'll add a 203 component, which has a book that's listed down at the bottom, and we'll actually just be studying the, the development of theological debates and ideas in the church. Uh, and focusing on that in the 203 version to be run two years from now.